From the Omaha World Herald newspaper this week, we learned that one half of Americans who responded to a recent Pew Research Center poll said they did not consider Christmas a religious holiday. A couple comments on the story from readers gives us a flavor of some of their sentiments. Quote, good food, good family time, good presents, funny gift tags, bad sweaters, and driving around to look at lights is what Christmas is about. Another reader wrote, it's a paid date off and much appreciated. And for many of the others who do consider it a religious holiday, it's a casual observance at best. Perhaps we go to church for an hour or so on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, or maybe we'll attend a Christmas program or attend church with family or friends on a Sunday like this one in a church like this. But in terms of a serious exercise of religious worship, most of us, if we're honest, would have to admit we're pretty relaxed about the whole thing. We kind of take it for in stride, perhaps even take it for granted. In our society, we kind of treat Jesus like one of our gifts under the tree, like one of our presents. We like to tuck Jesus into a nice, cute, harmless little box and put a bow on it. We portray him as a helpless, a helpless infant. To many, to some of us, perhaps to you, while he might have been a real boy laying in a manger who grew to walk the roads of Canaan, He's more of a fictional king, a fictional savior, with no real authority, no ability to affect your life, and with really nothing to do with you. Like the world around us, the temptation is to marginalize Jesus, to set him off to the side. You see, we tend to minimize him. We, we tend to make him small. Well, we in our country, we're not really into kings. Um, after all, we staged a revolt 237 years ago to get rid of a king so that we would not have a king over us, rather to stress our independence and declare our independence from just such a king. Yet in our songs of praise this morning, what did we sing? We proclaimed... Worship Christ, the newborn King. Come and behold Him, born the King of angels. Glory to the newborn King. Let earth receive her King. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. That, that's King language. That reigning language. Songs proclaimed this baby boy born in the manger. We sang songs proclaiming Him as Jesus, the King and the Savior. Well, why is it after 39 books of the Old Testament, after over 2,000 years of history narrated for us, the first thing you read when you open the pages of the New Testament is Matthew chapter 1 with this long, involved genealogy with over 40 names, followed immediately by a record of the miraculous birth of a baby, followed by the story of strange men from a far-off land visiting this child. Well, turn to Matthew chapter 1 with me this morning. Because Matthew's point is this. God's point is this. This is not just a nice story. In these first two chapters of Matthew, God is declaring to us that Jesus is the unique. Unique means one and only. The unique the one and only preeminent Savior and King. There is no one that compares. He's the incomparable King. Matthew is declaring that Jesus is coming to us as the God-man in the manger. And He really does save us from our sin. He saves me from my sin. He saves you from your sin. Jesus delivers us from darkness into light. And the reign of Jesus as Savior and King has real implications for you and for me. We'll be answering three basic questions about Christmas this morning and also about the Christ child. Number one, who is Jesus? Number two, why did He come? And number three, 
How will you respond to him? What will you do with him? We will see that this baby Jesus, born in a stable and placed in a manger, is God himself. He is the second person of the triune God, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has taken on flesh. He has become fully man, while not ceasing to be fully God, and he has come in the fullness of time, in fulfillment of the promises of God to save his people from their sin, to bring deliverance and salvation into the world. And we will see how varied the responses are to his coming. Some will be openly hostile to him. Some will be indifferent and discreetly hostile to him. And some will worship him. I've identified three points in this morning's message which flow logically from the text of the Bible itself. Point number one, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, God's faithful promises point to Jesus Christ. In keeping with his promises to deliver his people, God sovereignly displays Jesus as the only one with an unrivaled claim to the throne to God's kingdom and the one who fills the promises of God. Point number two, God's promise of deliverance through a king arrives. This is seen in the birth of Jesus. Eight little verses, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Jesus is portrayed as the unique and preeminent king who will save his people from their sins and will be with his people. And then point number three, three responses to the Savior's reign. The visit of the wise men recorded in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. In this account of the wise men from the east, we will see three responses to the coming king. The response of King Herod, the response of the religious leaders of the day, and the response of the wise men themselves. That brings us to our text, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Well, what's going on with this genealogy? Well, first of all, it's structured. There are three main sections. You have the introduction in verse 1, that's the summary of the whole thing. And then you have three sections of Scripture. Uh, first of all, the patriarchs. You might call it the hall, of, the hall of Fame of the early leaders of Israel in verses 2 to 6. Then you have, by and large, a list of failed kings in Israel from verses 7 to 11. And then finally, a list of the exiles, those who have had no king up until the time of Christ in verses 12 to 16. Now, Jesus is at the very beginning in verse 1. Jesus is at the very end in verse 17. All that comes before the genealogy points to Jesus, and by the time we get to the end, we're pointing to Jesus once again. Verse 17 ends with Jesus. It is a fascinating genealogy. We could delve into many, many details. We just have time to hit a few. But Matthew here in these first 17 verses is telling us that despite the fact that Israel, as God's, God's chosen people, had rebelled against God continuously and continuously over the centuries, and the fact that God had expelled them from the promised land for their sin, that God is going to be faithful to his promises. And those promises are to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verse 1 lays the groundwork. In verse 1, we see Matthew's main purpose. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew uses the word Christ. It is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title for Jesus. It refers to the anointed one. It refers to the Messiah. You anointed kings, and kings were anointed. Here we have Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the anointed king. He starts off this way to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God's promised, and he holds an unrivaled legal claim to the throne of King David, who is the very next person that is mentioned. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The emphasis here is on the son of David. You see, David is a legendary figure 
in Israel's history. David is the one who had defeated Goliath. David is the one who had united the nation Israel, brought the 12 tribes together. David is the one who brought the Ark of the Covenant, the very center of worship for Israel, had brought it to Jerusalem. The great King David, the greatest king in all of Israel's history. And God had promised something to this King David. We call it the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had promised to David that one of his descendants, one of his children, would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And that that one would be the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate king for Israel throughout eternity. Yet by the time of Christ's birth, the throne of David had been empty for 600 years because Israel had had sinned against God. God had expelled them from the land. And pretty much ever since then, they had been ruled, they had been a puppet kingdom ruled by foreign powers, just like they were at Jesus' time. The Romans ruled. The Jews did not have a king. Israel did not have a king. The Romans were in charge. And so what we find is that that fact, that that throne was empty, is about to change as the one who is destined to fill that throne is about to enter the world. One other thing to notice about the structure of this, the literary structure that we have here in this genealogy, is the word 14 seems pretty important. Notice down in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, to get 14 generations in each of those divisions that is in that genealogy, Matthew left out some. He didn't include everybody. The numbers wouldn't have been 14. Interesting as well, the 14th name in that genealogy is the name David. Well, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew language, they assign numerical values to letters. Well, guess what the numerical values in David's name adds up to? 14. It's as if Matthew is saying, this is about the son of David. Jesus is the fulfillment of the son of David. And he's saying it over and over and over again. He's pointing us to Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises to David. He is the son of David. Matter of fact, it's so strong that if you go through the Old Testament, you will find that the king of Israel sitting on the throne of David is the most common way to refer to it. You would think he would be referred to as the throne of Israel, and sometimes it is. But most of the time, it's the throne of David, the throne of David. This Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was said in the Old Testament about the throne of David, about the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise. Let's notice also in verse 1 that Abraham is mentioned. Abraham is the father of the nation Israel through his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. That's highlighted in verse 2. It was to Abraham that God promised land, descendants, and most importantly, that all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through a descendant of Abraham. And that blessing to all nations is about to be born. That one promised seed, that one preeminent descendant, Jesus, is to be born to a woman in Bethlehem. Bethlehem? That's the hometown of David. It's called the city of David. So you see the promise to Abraham and the promise to David are woven together by God as if he planned it from before the foundation of the world, which he had. And now he was bringing it to pass. It was coming true. Now the fact 
that this one about to be born is not just a savior of the Jews, is even seen in the genealogy itself. Four women are mentioned in the first six verses of Matthew's genealogy. And that's very unusual in the records in New Testament times. Usually, genealogies only included the name of the eldest male descendant in the family. Why? Because they were the ones who inherited from their fathers. It was rare to find women mentioned in genealogies, yet, let, yet here is something very significant. The first three women are mentioned in verses 3 and 5, and they are all non-Jews. Well, I thought this was about the people of Israel. I thought this was about the descendants from Abraham. Well, it is, but Abraham promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And now in this genealogy, we see three non-Jewish women. They are not from the nation Israel. They are from the other nations of the earth. Not only that, Tamar and Rahab are prostitutes. They are prostitutes. And they're, they're in Jesus' family tree. Ruth, the other one, the third one, is from Moab. Moab is a nation that was a hated enemy of Israel. These are all women from pagan peoples, not from the people of God, not from Israel, but they are foreshadowing the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. They are in the line of descendants that leads us to Jesus, to his birth. Well, one more woman is mentioned, although not by name. Look at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Why is she called the wife of Uriah? She has a perfectly good name. Her name is Bathsheba. Bathsheba, the, the one whom King David seduced the one by whom Solomon was born. But here, right in the middle of this genealogy, Matthew points us to the sin of this David. Because what happened to Bathsheba's husband? Do you remember? Bathsheba's husband was a commander in the army. And while he was away at war fighting for King David, David seduced his wife, Bathsheba. Well, she became pregnant. Well, this is going to be a problem, right? Because the husband's been gone. And here, by pointing to the wife of Uriah, Matthew is saying, this King David, the murderer, this King David, the adulterer. This King David is a sinner. Like many people on this list. Like many kings on this list. There are kings on this list who sacrifice their children to false gods. Matthew is not hiding the bad stuff. Matter of fact, the greatest sin of the greatest hero of the greatest king of Israel to this point, is dragged out into the open here in the midst of the genealogy, and it is clear that Matthew is not glorifying David, and he's not glorifying Abraham, and he's not bringing attention to these women or to the nation Israel. Rather, he is bringing our attention to Jesus Christ and none other. He doesn't gloss over their sins, but he lays them out and points at them in contrast to the redemption that he is going to provide through this baby, through Jesus. Who is he going to be the ultimate king? Who is sinless? Who is perfect? Who is righteous? He's saying, come and see how God in grace rescues a people out of their sin." So the next time you read your Old Testament, take a close look at the people that Jesus is associated with in his family tree. And when you read the New Testament, look at who he associated with in his life. Jesus went to 
the prostitutes and to the tax collectors and to the outcasts, to the unclean in society, to the lepers. You see, Christ died for the ungodly, Paul tells us in Romans. Christ died for the ungodly. That's at the heart of the gospel. And it's here in the heart of the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone is the fulfillment of all the promises God had given to his people in the Old Testament. Abraham and David, the two great heads of Israel who are given the great promises of the Old Testament are highlighted. These promises trickle down and trickle down through the generations and come to their climax and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and no other. He is the preeminent one, the unique one, the one and only. So we see God's faithful promises point to the king who sits on the throne of David, to Jesus Christ. Point number two, God's promise of deliverance through a king arrives. Verses 18 to 25 of chapter 1. Well, what kind of king and what kind of kingdom would Jesus rule? Not at all what the Jews were expecting. The Jews were expecting a conquering king who would come to Jerusalem, overthrow the Romans, and set up the state of Israel once again. That's what they wanted. They wanted a king like David who defeated Goliath. They wanted a king like David who would defeat their enemies. And that's not what they got. But what they did get is very clearly portrayed by Matthew even in the conception of Jesus. Now, Matthew only spends eight verses talking about Jesus' birth, but in these eight verses are packed three very important facts. The fact that Jesus was conceived in a virgin by the Holy Spirit. The fact that Jesus is God himself made flesh. And the fact that Jesus will save his people from their sins. First, let's talk about the virgin birth. And just so we don't miss it, Matthew emphasizes it four times in these eight verses. Matthew drives home the point that this Jesus is unique, that he is a one and only. There is no one like like him, and he does it by emphasizing that Jesus' birth was divinely conceived, divinely appointed, and miraculous. The first time is verse 18. Look at it with me. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Now, betrothal in New Testament times is more formal than an engagement in our times. It's almost a marriage, but not quite. But it is very legal in its implications. In order for someone once betrothed in marriage to someone in New Testament times to get out of it, they had to divorce them legally. It wasn't just like giving the ring back, all right? So, while... When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before they had sexual relations, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Matthew makes it very clear. She's a virgin and she's pregnant. The second time is verse 20. But as he, referring to Joseph, considered these things, I think it's interesting how we go right past that. Joseph considered these things. I'll bet he considered these things. She's pregnant. He knows it's not him. But as he considered these things, behold, whenever you see the word behold, that means this is really important. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, Son of David, there it is again, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The third time. Go down to verse 23. And this time, Matthew's going to emphasize 
the sovereignty of God over all these events, that God had all these things in control, that God had planned this throughout eternity, before the foundation of the world. Verse 23, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Isaiah had prophesied this. And then the fourth time is down in verse 25. Just in case we didn't get it the first three times, he says it yet in another way. But, but knew her not, but Joseph knew her not, did not have sexual relationship with her, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The birth of Jesus was of God. It was not of man. He eliminates all doubt regarding Jesus' birth here. Matthew is saying, he says it four times, she is a virgin, she is a virgin, she is a virgin, she is a virgin. How hard does he have to hit him in the head, us in the head, to believe it? Why is that significant? What does it mean that Jesus was born to a woman who never had sexual relationship before his birth? It means he is unlike any other man. And he is unlike any other king. No no king had this pedigree and no king had this father. The second fact that Matthew emphasizes here is that Jesus is God himself made flesh. And this answers the question, who is Jesus? Look again at verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not only is the promised Messiah a king born of a virgin, he is God himself. He is God with us. God present with us on this earth as we are as a human, as a man. Now, this passage in Isaiah 7 is closely tied with Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Very familiar passage where this divine child's kingdom rule and reign is described. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, God was not just sending them a king. God is their king. God is is their king. Their king, their deliverer, their savior. What else does the Bible tell us about this king? This Jesus. Who is he? Well, he's described at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. John 1, verse 3. I'm going to go through a number of passages here. You don't need to turn with me. John 1, verse 3. In the beginning was the Word, referring to the Son of God, referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see here that Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, was present with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past. We see that it is through the pre-incarnate Christ that all things were made. That Jesus, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, as described in Genesis chapter 1, created everything 
and nothing was made without Him. Now some in the ancient world, and some today, want to make Jesus less than fully God. They want to make Him some kind of mini-God, some subordinate or lesser God. Many others want to make Him something other than God at all. They want to make Him a great man, perhaps an exemplary teacher, a good example to follow. But the Bible goes out of its way to make it clear Jesus is completely and fully God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Verse 19. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2, verse 3. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Chapter 2, verse 9. For in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily, in bodily form. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Can He say it any more strongly? Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He upholds the universe. He sustains the universe by the word of His power. This is in opposition to a God that much of the world would like us to believe in who just created it all and now lets it go and lets it run. No. This God, this Jesus, sustains maintains the universe by the word of His power, even today, even now. The moon orbits the earth. The earth orbits the sun. The planets stay where they're supposed to. The galaxies continue to spin. And Jesus upholds it all. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, the heavens are screaming the glory of God. Are you listening? Jesus is the one that created it. Jesus is the one who sustains it. Our own Milky Way, the galaxy that our planet and our sun resides in. Do you know how many stars similar to our sun are just in our Milky Way? Over a billion. Matter of fact, conservative estimates are a hundred billion. A billion is a thousand millions. The mind just starts to boggle, doesn't it? It's, It's unfathomable. Over a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way alone. Well, how many galaxies like the Milky Way are in our universe? Another hundred plus billion. Again, the numbers just, it's like they're meaningless. But it's a lot. It's a lot. This Jesus, He is God. He does this. Let alone the complexity just even in our own bodies. The, 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 the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cells that we have in our own bodies and they work together. Jesus sustains that. It's incredible what He does. It's incredible the God that He is. And this is the Jesus who did what God would do if he became a man. The Old Testament prophesied about what this Savior, this King, would do when he came. Matter of fact, John John the Baptist, his disciples were confused because John was in prison. And here John was to be the herald of the coming King. Make the way straight, right? 
But John's in prison, and so John's disciples come to Jesus and they say, are you really the Christ? Are you really the Messiah? Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said to them, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the sick are healed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. In other words, absolutely I'm the Messiah. Absolutely I'm the Savior. I'm the King. I'm the coming one you've been waiting for. But to John's disciples, the world seemed like it was falling apart. John would be beheaded just a short time later. But Jesus is king. Now, his rule hasn't reached its ultimate climax yet. We still live in a world of sin. But it's just as if it's been completed for us who are his children. It's all an amazing work of Jesus, for he is God with us. Yet God tells us there is something even more amazing than this. In Matthew chapter 21, look at it with me, Matthew 21, we are told that this virgin, this Mary, that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means salvation. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus has come. He had to become a man to save us from our biggest problem, the problem of our sin. Our sin is the bad news. For because of our sin, we aren't qualified to be part of God's kingdom. We don't have the qualifications to have a relationship with God. We deserve to be excluded, to be on the outside, for we are sinners. We are rebels against Him. We want to come to God our own way, not His way. But the solution has come. The good news has come. In the midst of the bad news, Matthew is telling us Jesus came to save His people from their sins. Jesus said it, John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. Again, He's the preeminent one, the unique one, the one and only. There aren't multiple ways. There's a narrow way, the way of Christ. When the God-man was born on this earth, he came for one reason. He came to save his people from their sin. Philippians chapter 2 says it this way. And Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. As a result of that, now listen to what happens next. Therefore, verse 9 of Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me tell you, you bow before a king. This Jesus is king. He is Lord. He is Savior. And everyone, believer and unbeliever alike, will bow before him. We will bow before him under his loving and comforting hand. Others will bow before him in judgment for their refusal to follow him, to trust him. You see, Christ died for our sins. He paid the penalty for sin we deserve to pay and then did something more. For in the predetermined plan of God from before the foundation of the world, God made Jesus Christ, who was sinless, to take our sin upon himself on the cross, to die in our place on our behalf, to pay the penalty we deserve to pay, to endure the suffering we should have suffered, and then he credited us with the righteousness of Christ so that we might have peace with God. Peace with God. That is ours in Jesus. Salvation is a gift of God. 
I cannot earn it. During this season of gifts, this salvation is by far the incomparable ultimate gift. I can't be a citizen of God's kingdom by living a good life or following Jesus' example or living like Jesus lived or doing what Jesus did. For Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, we must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. I must keep the law of God perfectly. I must love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor and myself and I must do it all the time. I can't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. None of us can do it. Only Jesus did it. And because He did it for us and then takes His righteousness and gives it to us, we can stand before the Father declared righteous, declared perfect before Him because of the blood of Christ. Point number three. Three responses to the Savior's reign. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. God is bringing, yes, God is guiding these pagans, these wise men from the east, probably from the area of Babylon, probably from Persia. They've probably been on the road for weeks now following this supernatural star. Maybe months they've been following it. But supernaturally, God is bringing these pagans to the Christ child. We see three responses identified here. The first response is from Herod. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod is troubled. What's he worried about? Well, he knows there's a prophecy of a coming king in Israel. And he's the king and he doesn't want to not be the king. As a matter of fact, He's already killed his relatives to be sure they don't take his place as king. And he'll be as ruthless as he needs to to be sure nobody else can take his place as king. Because Herod's on the throne and he doesn't want to be moved off. So he will take extreme measures. He is opposed, aggressively and outwardly opposed to Jesus. Well, what's he do in verse 4? we see the second group and their response. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, a king, who will shepherd my people Israel. Micah chapter 5 written 800 years before Jesus was born. The priests and the scribes knew it. The religious leaders knew it. He was to be born in Bethlehem. Well, you would think these wise men have come following a star. They want to know where the king is, the, the king of the Jews, where, where this child is. You would think these religious people would be trotting on down the road as fast as they could move to find this one. I mean, Bethlehem's only six miles from Jerusalem, and it's downhill. Okay? You can walk it pretty fast. They have no interest. There is no indication they have any desire to get moved out of their comfortable religious tradition and see the Messiah. To see what is happening in Bethlehem. To follow the wise men. To worship. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He's so sincere, isn't he? 
He's slimy and treacherous is what he is. He's ruthless is what he is. If we went on in our study this morning, the last half of chapter 2, you will see he killed all the baby boys in Jerusalem less than two years old. The slaughter of the innocents, it's called. Rachel weeping for her children. To be sure, none of them survived. But of course, Jesus is protected by God. An angel comes and tells Joseph to take him to Egypt until Herod is gone. So Herod continues his quest to try to kill the Messiah. Well, the third response is from the wise men themselves. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child. By this time, Jesus is no longer in the stable. He's in a house. It's probably a year or two after his birth. But he's still in Bethlehem. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are gifts fit for a king. Now these wise men surely had a king of their own in the country they came from. But yet they have come to this king. And they are worshiping this king. And they are bowing before this king. Because that's what you do before a king. You bow in humility. And so they did. Well, which of these three approaches are you taking this Christmas? God has confronted us this morning with who Jesus is, why he came, and now he calls for a response. How will you respond? You see, Jesus forces a choice upon us. What choice will you make? Because in the fullness of time, in God's purpose and plan, Jesus was born into this world to save his people from their sins. He is the Savior King. Will you worship him this Christmas? Will you trust in Him? Will you embrace Him as Savior and King? We have sinned against God, rebelled against Him. All our good deeds can't pay for that sin. God won't accept our good deeds as payment for sin. He doesn't recognize our good deeds as payment for our sin. The prophet Isaiah says all our righteous deeds, all our good deeds are like filthy rags before Him. That's why in love he sent his son who in fulfillment of the law of God, in fulfillment of the great promises of God to Abraham and David and the prophets came to a people who had no earthly king for over 600 years, whose land was ruled by a foreign occupying power. But this king came in humble circumstances. He was born in a stable in a place where farm animals are kept. He was laid in a manger in a place where farm animals are fed. Yet this king came to rule in our hearts. And most amazing of all, this king Jesus invites us to come to him, to come to Emmanuel, to God with us. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come find rest this Christmas. Find peace this Christmas. Not the false peace the world offers, but a peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that comes from resting in the arms of God on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, in the arms of our good shepherd. For the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 28 ends with the words of Jesus. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Behold, Emmanuel, God with us, will be with us always till the end of the age. May our hearts be amazed and immersed 
in Emmanuel this Christmas. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we marvel at Jesus. We marvel at the one, Father, that you provided so that we might have peace with you. We might be reconciled to you on the basis of the shed blood of Christ for our sins and on the basis of the righteousness that he credits to us because of his perfect life lived in a way that pleases you. Father, help us this morning. Help us, Father, to keep the gospel ever before us, the gospel that Christ died for our sins, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is no other. I pray, Father, that we as a congregation, as a church, as we go out into the world this week, as we spend time with family and friends, and as we celebrate Christmas, Father, that you would give us opportunity to proclaim Christ, that you would give us eyes to see the open doors that you will provide, that you would give us boldness to proclaim Jesus to a world that sorely needs it. Help us to love Jesus more and more. Help us come to the foot of the cross each and every day. Acknowledge that we are sinners and we are lost without Him and that we need Jesus. For apart from Him, we can spiritually do nothing. With exceeding and great joy, we praise You. Amen.